everyone, Terry Welbrock here. Just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the exciting news that my fourth audiobook has been released and is now out there in the world of Audible. You can go to Amazon and look up Terry Welbrock Narrator or uh, The Best Bedtime Stories for Stressed Out Adults, Book Two. And the other three books are The Energy Medicine Solution, The Wellness Woman, and The Best Bedtime Stories for Stressed Out Adults, book one. So there you go. All right, well, go check it out. I do have some download codes available if you are interested in any of those books. I've given away all of the codes for the Energy Medicine Solution in the United States. I still have 25 codes for the UK. They gave me codes for the United States and the UK. Um, but I have codes for the other three books. So if you're interested, reach out to me um, at info at terrywellbrock.com. That's my email, info at terrywellbrock.com. And just say, hey, I'd love to have a code. And I will uh, send you one, first come, first serve. All right, thanks. Enjoy the show. Welcome everybody to the Healing Place podcast. I am your host, Terry Wellbrock, and very, very happy to have with me today, Tamara McClintock-Greenberg. And she is clinical psychologist, author, and speaker. So welcome, Tamara. Thank you for having me. Yes. And we just were chatting a few minutes before hitting record. And I told you, I'm excited. You had gifted me this and I'm very excited. I never read books before my guests come on because it just makes the conversation more organic when I don't already know the answers. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, so I will. It is definitely, it was sitting on the top of my pile of books to read. And so when I was like, oh, I think I have her book and then pop, there it was. So yes, you are on my list and I'm excited to learn about it because I have, as my audience knows, a CPTSD diagnosis from childhood trauma and a difficult youth. So um, talk to us about, about this beautiful book you've gifted to the world. Yeah, well, I... I think, you know, complex trauma has been over pathologized and not really understood. And so it's kind of a great time that we're living in because a lot of people are thinking about and writing about complex trauma now um, in a different way. Um, but complex trauma is essentially, you know, starts in childhood since trauma leads to later trauma. People who were traumatized as children often have trauma as adults. And it's, it's very similar to PTSD. The symptoms are the same, but the symptoms are also, there's more symptoms and they're more severe. And the biggest thing that I, <clears throat> that I think about with complex trauma is that it involves a theft of one's identity. And even if people, and many people with complex trauma histories are incredibly resilient, um, even if they're resilient, they found a great career, you know, they're in a partnership, whatever it is, they might still not know who they really are. Um, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. But I think that as trauma survivors, there's a way that, you know, people are in other people's minds all the time because you're trying to figure out what's going on in the minds of others so you can be prepared. Um, and it becomes that hypervigilance, right? We think about hypervigilance as this kind of discrete symptom in PTSD, but in complex PTSD, hypervigilance, I think, becomes woven into our character styles. 
And of course it makes for a great career, right? If you're a therapist or a doctor or a lawyer, you know, um, I mean, there's lots of incredible people who become great at their careers because they can figure out what other people need. But the problem is, is if we do that too much, we lose track of what we need for ourselves. And it just makes life incredibly difficult because we don't know how to set limits. We feel crazy when we're disappointed or angry about something. You know, we get unsure of what's going on inside of us because we're so busy paying attention to the external world. Yes. Oh my gosh. I love, I love the way you've presented that. And another thing that popped into my head is taking on the voices of others. Those so those voices of my parents or voices of those who were abusive um, that it, then it did become very difficult to know like what's my voice and and then being able to use that voice, feeling confident enough to be able to say, oh, this is my voice. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. No, I think that's really well put. And in addition, because in complex PTSD, one of the main symptoms that a lot of people have is dissociation, right? And so dissociation can be pleasant or unpleasant though. You know, I mean, dissociation can be, I always describe it as, if you're in a bot in a meeting with a boss who drives you crazy and you know, you're looking at them, but you know, thinking about something else, you're completely somewhere else. That's a good use of dissociation because you can seem like you're present, but not be, and it's, it's willful, but unfortunately dissociation often turns into a symptom that is deeply unpleasant for people. Um, it can feel terrible, but the biggest, to your point, the biggest thing about dissociation that is really hard is we can't learn from experience when we're dissociated. So if we have an interaction with somebody and it goes poorly, we leave. And then when we leave, we aren't sure of the facts of the situation. And so one of the worst consequences of that is we can go back into the same kind of situation because we don't really remember how we got into the negative situation in the first place. So it makes it hard for us to realize, wait, that's a bad actor. I need to stay away from them. You know, we might not realize that until we're in another situation where we're too far in again. So I, I think, you know, one of the things, it, dissociation has been written about in, in really um, complicated ways. And, and one of the ways that it's been written about has been to, to pathologize and, and um, you know, the, the people who experience it. But I think that the important thing to think about with dissociation is it's better to be able to be present in our own minds so we can learn from experience and protect ourselves from people who aren't going to treat us very well. Wow. Do you see my mind go like powerful that's the first time i've heard it explained that way and it so resonated with me because there was those repeated behaviors until i i did the healing work and and figured out all of it uh but yes looking back and seeing you're right that i i didn't gain any because that was my that was my mo i dissociated and um yeah, just getting back into, especially relationship-wise, repeating those same codependent relationships or abusive relationships. Yeah. And I think it's important to think about it that way because otherwise people feel crazy. They think, well, what's wrong with me? Why do I keep being attracted to these situations that aren't good? And it's more than just we do what we know. You know what I mean? Because 
that of course that is true, right? We are attracted to, to, to what we know. I always joke that I went into the field of psychology to try to fix my parents, you know, but which, you know, does not work by the way, but um, <laughs> our parents stay the same, no matter what we do for a living. But, um, but I think it's really important for people to understand that they're not crazy. And this mechanism of leaving it, 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 it puts this, the, you know, the odds against them. And so getting dissociation under control is really important because otherwise people just feel like, well, no, it's me. There's some, I'm damaged. And so I keep being attracted to these bad actors. It, it's more, much more complicated than that. Yeah. Very powerful. And along those same lines, at least in, in my brain, Come, comes the whole boundaries part of it because then once you do start to recognize and, and you're aware of it and cognizant uh it's then oh shit how do I put boundaries in place because <laughs> I remember my sister and I talking about it. it was just me and my sister in our household growing up and we both were like one the comfort in the chaos right we 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 found comfort in being in those situations because it was what we knew yeah. um but then oh how do we put boundaries in place like we lived in these boundaryless this world that we didn't understand right right yeah no I mean I, it's a really good point especially and I think I think one of the things that can scare us about boundaries I, I think this is more true in, in women um, just because of sociocultural reasons although it can be very hard for for men um, too uh, but setting boundaries can feel very aggressive it can feel very aggressive when we say no. And, you know, you can kind of tell people who grew up in, you know, more, let's say normal, um, but less chaotic households, less abusive households, because they say no, and they look like they're completely untroubled by it. You know, whereas if you grow up in a more complicated, difficult household, you know, you can tell the person saying no, and, and it feels inside like you're doing something wrong. You know, you're worried, you're worried you're going to hurt someone. You're worried that you're doing something terrible. And it becomes really important for us to figure out that, you know, we're entitled to say no, we're entitled to set boundaries and people don't get hurt by us, you know, setting boundaries. <laughs> In fact, it keeps everybody safer. So, um, but it learning how to do that, I think becomes a really big part of the recovery. Yes. And it's, that's so fascinating what you're saying, because even with all the healing work I've done and just tremendous amount of healing work and really feeling <laughs> it's such a more empowered place. What Yesterday, I I had to put some really strong boundaries in place with someone, um, a stranger, a man. And I am all day today, it has been on my mind, like second, yeah. second, guessing, guessing myself, like questioning, oh, should I, should I, should I, should. And I know better. And I'm, I'm stopping myself and saying, stop, you know, but, but it is amazing how that just has such an empower, such a powerful impact on us as children. Yeah. Yeah. And the way I think about it is, you know, being assertive is a healthy form of aggression. And so all of us, I think, need to develop a relationship with our own aggression, you know, because we all have, you know, aggression is on a spectrum, of course, you know, and, you know, being assertive is certainly not inappropriate aggression, but it doesn't feel like that if you were raised in an environment where people were boundaryless or, or aggressive and aggressive. So part of it, I do think is behavioral practice, you know, just doing it over and over again and realizing 
you know, nobody gets hurt if I say no, or even if they are hurt, I'm still setting a boundary, which I am entitled to do. But I think the other part of it is this kind of internal work around a a relationship with just that being, having a trauma history means that we do have a lot of angry feelings and we come by those. Honestly, we're entitled to those. And if you're thinking in the way that you and I are talking, it's terrifying. And so I think the internal work is sort of figuring out like, you know, where the terror comes from, but also I think learning how to be kind of in your own mind and body regarding both the terror and the anger. And I think, you know, principles of mindfulness and mentalization can be really helpful here because it's like accepting those feelings without judgment. Um, but it's a it's a huge problem that that you see. And certainly that's my practice, you know, is people who are they're terrified to set any kind of a limit. Um, and so I, I think that, again, it's behavioral practice, but it really is coming to terms with, I think, best as I've been able to figure out, you know, because I've thought about this for a long time, both for myself and my clients for almost 30 years. I really think it's coming to terms with this idea of our own anger and having a relationship with it. Amen. It's the one thing that I had not touched upon was the anger bit of it. And I I remember talking and saying, I finally had the realization that aha moment of, I, I never wanted to deal with my anger or honor it or allow it because I didn't want to be pushed past that line that my dad crossed. Uh huh. Yeah. his anger. And I was like, oh, I, if I set it free, I'll become him. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and I think that's, I, I think it's that, I think it's also less conscious worries that we could hurt someone, you know, it's kind of like being like the perpetrator, but it's also, I think more, I don't know how it is for you, but I think for a lot of people, it's more of this, just kind of almost like this ambiguous, amorphous feeling of just I'm bad if I feel angry, you know, it's not even, you know, again, you're speaking rationally about it, but, but, you know, which is great because I think you're right. I agree with you, but I think there's also just this sense of I'm a terrible person if I'm angry. Oh yeah. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. Wow. Got me, you got me thinking I'm going to have to be journaling a lot later on. So your coping skills workbook, then it does that guide people through anger and emotions and in all of that that's coming up? Yeah. So, um, I, you know, I contribute things I think that are a little bit novel to the conversation and, and mainly, you know, cause obviously a lot of people have written incredible books about complex trauma, um, But I think the thing that and the feedback I've gotten is that the anger part really hasn't been covered a lot. In fact, if you look at the psychological literature, the the mental health literature, the science, uh, the science around it, in all of the PTSD articles that there are, less than two percent of papers talk about anger. Wow. Yeah. So it's not just survivors. It's it's like people in the field. I mean, nobody wants to really think about anger in a nuanced way. I mean, it's it's lived on social media and stuff, but I'm not talking about that. You know, I'm talking about thinking about it in a, in a really nuanced way. And 
and how we all have to develop a relationship with our own anger and aggression. So it, in the field, we don't really talk about it and think about it. So, so one of the things I wanted to do, you know, when I did the workbook was to focus on the idea of anger and then, um, and then I bring in, you know, strategies of mentalization, you know, which is from Peter Fonagy's work in, in the UK, incredible stuff about, it's basically like thinking about thinking um, and what makes, it's kind of like the ingredients of what makes us all healthy-ish to the extent that any of us can be human beings, you know, um, curiosity towards others, the ability to to modulate our emotions, but but really a sense of it's kind of like a meta psychology almost in terms of um, what contributes to mental health treatment in a positive way, like the underlying ingredients to help people get better. Um, it was developed for therapists actually first um, in terms of how therapists can have better outcomes, but then it's since been applied to work with clients, um, and that's what I've done is apply some of those ideas for for clients and how to op- operationalize them. Um, and then, and then I, I also, and I guess this is kind of like what my writing has always been is kind of talking about things that a lot of people, you know, don't want to talk about or think about, but there's a chapter on suicidal thinking, uh, suicidality, there's a chapter on substance abuse. Um, and I really try to provide practical skills for people to deal with, you know, some of these really awful experiences and the legacy of trauma, um, and to try to go beyond, you know, there's nothing wrong with CBT approaches. The book is full of them, but but I try to go beyond that to offer, um, you know, a more complete uh, multimodal um, approach for dealing with complex trauma. Oh, thank you for that. Because I, as everyone knows, in the five plus years this show has been around that, uh, gosh, six now, um, that's what we talk about is how it's not a cookie cutter approach. There's not a one size fits all for, for folks for trauma survivors. And that, so I tell people build that huge coping skills toolbox, like in, in different modalities and try somatic and I, EMDR. And I, I mean, I've done so much. Uh, so yeah, I love it that you have a multimodal approach. That's wonderful. Yeah. It's, and it's something that I, I, I worry about a lot in, in our fields, quite frankly, because a lot of people, they learn one or two techniques and then they apply those to, to everybody who comes in the door. And, you know, when I was in training in the early nineties, I mean, we had to learn everything, you know, you learned everything. It wasn't like, this is better than that. You just, you learned everything and then you applied what you learned to who came in and you tailored it to what the client's needs were not, I do this one thing. And so let's just do that for everybody. The The field has gotten so, um, you know, almost religious in terms of, you know, feelings of, well, we're the best and everybody else is bad, you know? Um, and it's, it's concerning. It's really concerning and it doesn't serve clients at all. Right. Well, I, I mean, I've no, I've been so blessed to have, um, my personal therapist in the field, one who I was working with, who was CBT, um, cognitive behavioral therapy approaches. And I remember her saying to me, Terry, I think maybe you need to look into EMDR. And that was the first time it had come across my radar because she said, yours is so complex that I don't, I just don't think I'm going to do you justice. And so she was willing, which I think is such a gift from her to me that I was able to move to another EMDR focused therapist. Um, and 
wow, did we do a lot of breakthrough work over four years. So again, that it's wonderful to be able to find those. And that's one of the things like another thing I want to remind folks is don't be afraid to shop around. Don't be afraid to move. Don't be afraid to find that fit for you. Yeah. Oh, and actually that is one of the chapters of the book is I, there's a whole chapter on how to find a therapist Right. And, and talking about like how to break up with a therapist, you know, how to handle the first session, because you're right. I mean, people don't know, and it is really important for people to feel empowered to, you know, see people as many, you know, see as many first sessions or however many sessions until you find the right person. I, I think it's really, really crucial. Um, and, and people have different needs at different times, right? I mean, when we're young, it's different than what we need when we're older. I mean, life brings different challenges. You know, when you have a kid, your needs are different. When your kids leave for college, your needs are different. You know, um, if you don't have kids, your needs are different. So it's just, I think, you know, being honoring and being really respectful of that you're entitled to find the right person who gets you. And in fact, if you look at the research on how psychotherapy works, we don't really know much about how psychotherapy works. But one of the things that we know is that empathy and the relationship between the therapist and the client, that explains most of the variance of how therapy works. That's 30% of the variance. 30% of the variance of how therapy works is the relationship between the therapist and the client. A big part of that is empathy. 15% of how therapy works is the technique. So it's really important to find somebody who can empathize, who you feel like gets you. Now that's complicated because you don't want someone who gets you so much that they're always saying to you, I get it. I'm there with you. You know what I mean? Like in the, in the sense of I'm struggling too constantly, like you don't want right. that from a therapist, but you do want from your therapist a sense of that, that they understand where you're at and you feel you don't feel that like they're judging you. You don't feel like they think you're crazy. Um, I mean, look, people in our field, let's face it, they can be really judgmental. Um, I've felt that as a client. I've, you know, I hear that from my own clients all the time. So it's it's really important to find somebody who makes you feel not just safe, but but like they they get you. Oh, absolutely. Yes. That being seen and heard or feeling that, even if they haven't lived it, right to just right have empathize with where you're sitting in it. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, thank you for that. Um, well, I certainly want to give you an opportunity to talk about anything that you're feeling moved to talk about, or if you have a passionate subject that you'd like to, to touch upon. Um, I mean, I feel like we've kind of talked about it in indirect ways. You, you're so, I mean, you get it. So it's, I mean, it's like, I don't, I almost don't need to say it to you and your listeners. Cause I feel like you guys are already, you know, so understanding of this, but the thing that, that, you know, concerns me is that a lot of people with complex trauma have been pathologized. And so one of the things that um, I've written about, and I talk about when I do interviews is that, you know, this idea of having borderline personality disorder or a personality disorder the way that gets overlapped with complex trauma, I feel like has done a real disservice to people. Um, it concerns me. It also has problems in terms of the psychometrics of how we think about, you know, personality disorders and not to be too into the weeds on this, but basically the interrater reliability coefficient of personality disorders is 0.30. Okay. So what do I mean by that? It means that 
three out of 10 clinicians will come up with the same personality disorder diagnosis. Three out of 10. So if, when you have a 30% agreement rate of a mental health diagnosis, a personality disorder diagnosis, that should give you pause about the criteria of that diagnosis, right? I mean, if we had some equivalent to that in medicine, um, there would be, you know, outrage, right? I mean, you wouldn't be able to diagnose with somebody with a certain kind of cancer, for example, if only 30% of clinicians agreed that it was that kind of cancer. So it's, it's a concern um, about the use of personality disorders. You know, the criteria are just very overlapping. They don't take into account, um, you know, development and how people's coping skills are, you know, really organized around what worked at the time. Um, and, and it's just, they've been, I, I think, very inappropriately applied to women. Um, particularly the label of borderline personality disorder. So I, I do think the field is making some good strides and moving away from that. Um, but that's the one thing that I just like to add to the conversation, because I, I think it's really important that people, you know, trauma makes you feel crazy and bad in so many ways already. And the last thing we need is for people to, you know, go to therapy and be given these labels that don't even begin to capture the reality of their experience. And in my opinion, historically, I think have been um, over applied to women. Yeah. Wow. Wonderful. And thank you for pointing that out. And I've read that before. I've heard, I worked in a mental health agency for a while and I, I love it. The agency that I was in, um, that they, they were starting to recognize it and talk out loud about it and say, we really need, it was uh, working with children. And so they, I think they were at the forefront uh, of starting to say, we really need to look at the ACE scores or the childhood trauma and the impact that this is having in these behaviors that these children are displaying in the classrooms or at home or whatever, that is it really this diagnosis that, you know, when we put all the little check marks in the boxes, or is it, is this relating back to the horrific trauma that this child has endured? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And if you remove them from the environment, they can start to heal. And, you know, some of those, you know, problematic behaviors will likely change. Yeah. Wow. Wonderful. Well, this has just been such a wonderful treat to have you. Oh, we just hit our half hour. Woo! <laughs> Look at us go. <laughs> that was awesome. So how do how do folks connect with you? How do they get a hold of your books? Um, well, I myself am in San Francisco. Um, and it, all that information is on my website, which is Tamara-Greenberg.com. And my book is at um, online sellers uh, across the world, actually. So um, it's already been translated into a number of languages. And um, so it will be available um, and at least last I heard a few months ago, it was translated into five language, five different languages. Um, but uh, so it'll be available in different languages, but also um, it is available worldwide online, uh, mostly through Amazon, but also through my publisher, New Harbinger. Wonderful. Well, that's uh, congrats on that. That's wonderful to be able to just reach a global audience with with your message. So thank you. Thank you. All right. Well. It's been wonderful again. Thanks for the healing work you do for joining me here today to shine your beautiful light of hope into the lives of 
all of us listening. And um, yeah, it's just been a pleasure. All right. Thank you so much. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining us today on the Healing Place podcast. And remember until next time, be gentle with yourself. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. Terry Wilbrock again. Just wanted to thank you for listening to the episode today and remind you to visit my website as well, terrywellbrock.com. You can sign up for my monthly Hope for Healing newsletter, which is also jam-packed with information and strategies and blog pieces and guest blog pieces and links to shows. Thanks for, again, being here and being a part of this healing space. I very much appreciate you. All right. Bye-bye.